0: Welcome to the Roadrunner Exchange, a show that features leaders from Metropolitan State University of Denver discussing the projects, initiatives, and decisions impacting our campus community. I am your host, Dr. Samuel J., Director of Faculty Affairs and Associate Professor of Communication Studies. Today, I talk with Dr. Sean Petronovich, Director of Data and Analytics here at MSU Denver, about his path to campus, ethical data collection and usage, and how institutional data is being used to strengthen student enrollment and retention efforts at our university. Hope you'll enjoy. Sean Petronovich. Um, congratulations. It's your first podcast.
1: I appreciate it. you got to come a little closer. Yeah, a little yes. closer to the mic. Now, are
0: you a podcast listener?
1: Not so much. Okay. Uh, but what,
0: what, is, what do you listen to when you're when you're on your commute then? Oh, you're reading. I saw you on the train. Yeah, you read.
1: Yeah, I read. Uh, I'll do uh, like a book on tape okay. sometimes, an yeah. audio book, but... Oh.
0: Uh, are you a fiction guy? Are you a philosophy guy? What is it? What is Sean trying to just listen to? It's all over the place. Yeah, I mean, these
1: days it's it's harder for me to kind of get into the philosophy stuff because yeah. I feel like you need some time and uh, more coffee and it's yeah. it's more energy than a quick train ride. Yeah. Um, so the train ride stuff is usually fiction yeah. or uh, I don't know little data
0: bits here and there. <laughs> team of Teams, right? That's what you've been reading. Been reading that, Team of Teams. Yeah. Is, are you have you wrapped it up?
1: Uh, no, but getting close, right? okay. And the, the ending sections, yeah. Uh, so, like, no surprises there. I mean, it's basically, you know, if you read the title of the book, you've got an indication of what's yeah. about to come, but it's 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 interesting to kind of read through to kind yeah. of see some
0: real-world applications of it. Who wrote that? McMaster? Uh, no. Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, you know, you're kind of this guy at the university that everybody knows, right, and you've referenced <laughs> in meetings, like chairs meetings, then, you know, a senior leadership meeting, everybody knows Sean Petronovich. How did you get here? Because we've never talked about that. I mean, you and I have, but how, 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 did, how did Sean get here?
1: Yeah, uh, kind of uh, by accident. Okay. Um, so happened to be uh, moving to the Denver area. My wife got a job here at the Children's Hospital, so we okay. were moving up to Denver. Um, and uh, at that time, I was still kind of chasing um, the prospect of, of being a full-time philosophy professor. Uh, there happened to be a an, an affiliate position in the philosophy department, okay. so that was my in for the university, was being an affiliate philosophy uh, instructor. Um, and uh, while I was here, happened to kind of therefore be on the list for internal postings. Ah. Uh, and they were trying to uh, fill a position in the business intelligence unit okay. um, that was not for me. They had posted it for somebody else. Okay. Um, and, uh, but I was already here and got the email and so applied. Uh, And they ended up bringing both of us on board. Um, So kind of accidentally wiggled, you know, my way into the business intelligence unit uh, because it was, you know, this data stuff. I had been doing it for a while
0: before anyway. Yeah, tell me about that. Like, I mean, philosophy and business analytics or even business intelligence, (laughs) um, they're not usually in the same school. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's kind of a a left brain, right brain kind of thing for me. So I did philosophy, um, but I had also, you know, I double majored as an undergrad in philosophy and economics. Okay. So I got some uh, economics, socioeconomic research jobs right after undergrad, uh-huh. uh, and I kind of used those to kind of pay for grad school. Um, and so I'd been doing data stuff on the side for a while, um, kind of got tired of pursuing the philosophy thing full time, uh, and uh, was able to kind of find, find this gig, which has turned out to be much better.
0: What was your philosophy, I guess not track, but specialty, your kind of sub yeah,
1: area. so I work in uh, Husserlian phenomenology, um, so kind of early 20th century German phenomenology. Yeah. So studies of the structure of experience, how do we experience yeah. stuff.
0: Do I have some and, uh, Yeah, my
1: a <laughs> In particular, I, I've worked on, uh, you know, what does it mean to experience being a member of a group? Wow. So, you know, how do we experience group membership, whether that's like a, an intimate, close-knit group yeah. or kind of a, a larger Anonymous group, like, you know, being, you know, a Coloradan or something like that. And what is that experience like?
0: Always kind of that group uh, uh, phenomenology, um, can that include, did you ever do like organization work or was it mostly like an organization, a company, or was it mostly different kind of in-grouping, out-grouping? Uh, Culture-based, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it was a mixture of everything. So, I mean, my, my specialization was about, like, you know, how does this one guy, Edmund Husserl, talk about social groups? So that included, um, you know, smaller groups, larger groups, you know, companies, okay. families, uh, friend groups, yeah. uh, groups of you know, professional groups and, and these kinds of things. Yeah. The argument there was that, you know, he has one theory of how this is all kind of hangs together yeah. and uh, was exploring that.
0: What was your dissertation on?
1: It was on Husserl's uh, theory of community okay. uh, and uh, not to get too into the weeds no, here. No, i it's, know, uh, so it, this. This Yeah, weird. yeah. So so Husserl has a theory of parts and holes okay. as part of his logic. And so okay. people usually talk about his theory of parts and holes uh, as like one part of his logic, kind of dry symbolic logic stuff. Yeah. And then he has all this other stuff he wrote about community membership and being in social groups and intersubjectivity, uh, And my... Uh, argument was to say like, you know what, I think he actually talks about social groups in the same way that he talks about logic and muriology and parts and wholes and here's how that kind of matters and here's why we should care that he writes about social groups in the same way he talks about parts and wholes.
0: Where has his school of thought gone in the last 80, 90 years? Like where, what are the advancements in that, in that perspective?
1: yeah so there's kind of a there there was a kind of a divergence uh, okay. right around the time that he was kind of wrapping up um, where we get this kind of split between continental and analytic philosophy okay. kind of continental european and uh, kind of anglo-saxon philosophy okay. yep. um and uh it ended up that you know the two were kind of going their own route uh, and only in the last i would say 20 20 years or so we've started to have some people who are, who are not me, (laughs) uh, but people who are really good at doing both analytic and continental philosophy. Okay. And it's been really interesting because they've started to be able to bring together, you know, what all the analytic tradition has been doing in terms of, uh, you know, social cognition and, you know, collective intentionality in their realm. And then being like, oh, you know what? Husserl wrote about this a hundred years ago and things like that. Um, and so it's been, it been, you know, the last 15, 20 years have been really interesting in okay. terms of bringing these two schools of thought together uh, and seeing that there's perhaps more overlap than, uh, than people
0: thought there was. No, that's a really good point. I mean, yeah. I think when I think of, like I use a lot of Kenneth Berg and I use a lot of Foucault. Mm-hmm. And, and 40 years ago, those two would never thought mm-hmm. even to even be brought into the same conversation. But, mm-hmm. you know, in the last 10 to 15, I think scholars are willing to put them in a conversation with each other just to see i mean there has to be care there has to be crossover right i mean there just has to be it's they're uh, coming from very not similar places but they're experiencing the world i suppose right and culture in in complex ways but um okay so you got here you were teaching uh Philosophy is an adjunct, so you know the plight of the adjunct. Okay, uh, how how has your job evolved now, right? Because I'm guessing it started in a very different way than it probably is now. So what what is what's your growth been like as a professional here?
1: Yeah, so when I came on, I think my title was something like junior business intelligence oh, specialist or something, okay. and uh, it was it was a lot of you know querying data and, yeah. and answering people's questions, um, and and it was always kind of. Reactive, like people would put in requests. I need to know how many students of with this major have this characteristic right. and stuff like that, and really kind of small small analyses uh, of, of that variety. Um, and you know we over the last four and a half years or something, um, you know it's just grown uh, exponentially in terms of you know the number of requests coming in, mm-hmm. but we did enough of those you know where we started to ourselves be the ones who are posing the questions to ourselves. And so it it started to become a little bit less of like, hey, so-and-so has a question about this data element. And it came more of like, hmm, I remember that time I looked at this thing and that reminds me of this other thing. Let's bring those two things together and look at it from this new perspective um, to to where we are now. Um, So uh, now kind of overseeing the business intelligence unit, the institutional research office and the enterprise data warehouse. Where we have all these kind of groups working in sync to yeah. help inform strategic decision making which would have uh, was not a part of the conversation you know f-
0: yeah. four years ago it's yeah I, wanna, sort of I, wanna, nice. I I I, nav- I have not asked you this, but I am genuinely intrigued by how did data become a buzzword because mm-hmm. it's a lot like blockchain mm-hmm. right like it's <laughs> just this word yeah. nobody hundred percent knows what it means, mm-hmm. but it's everywhere, right mm-hmm. I mean. I got. What was every morning? The Chronicles got an article about it every morning, or Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, Harvard Business Review. So, when was this shift, and and why? If you could kind of explicate that,
1: I don't know that I can explicate it, but I'm happy to speculate. You know, I think from you know, as as modern computing power power has gotten better and our ability to kind of store data has gotten better, you know, I think whether we acknowledge it explicitly or implicitly uh-huh. we're at some level kind of aware of all of the data that's being tracked about ourselves and we you know you think about yourself being on amazon or your google you know history and what have you we ha- we kind of whether we acknowledge it or not realize at some level that there is all of this data out there and that we're swimming in it and that we're part of models and that we're kind of contributing to nudging needles this way yeah. and that and I, I think we can't help but, you know, be aware of all the data that's out there. Okay. And so when it comes to to acting, to making decisions and so forth, you know, there perhaps was a time when you could get away with thinking like, well, there's not, there's no data. And so we, we just got to go for it. Yeah. Um, and I think these days, you know, the idea that there would be no data on a thing yeah. is, uh, you
0: know, <laughs> it's harder to believe. In terms of, of popular awareness... Is there something to be said for social media and how social media has impacted our understanding or at least our recognition of data collection or data usage?
1: Hmm. Possibly. I mean, I think there's probably something to, you know, what the experience is of of you know creating a profile for yourself, of yeah. kind of being the one who's inputting, you know, different things to this avatar and, you know, being the one who contributes to how your own data looks, that we kind of curate these kind of pictures of ourselves yeah. in some respects. Uh, but then you know we can't help but you know see our feed we can't help yeah. but see you know how things are you know oh, i clicked on that thing once and once. now i know my next
0: week is going to be involving uh, you know a lot of that uh, <laughs> and stuff yes. like that yes um, i was reading an interesting article about twitter and the argument was was that twitter is actually better at collecting consumer data than facebook and the the author uh, uh stratechery I, t- I think i told you about it it's a, a fantastic uh weekly um, uh newsletter that comes out but he was making the other because of the conversation about Elon Musk, you know, trying to buy Twitter. But Twitter should really split itself up into three different platforms. And one of them is like data. One is profile, like user profile <laughs> and engagement. I can't remember the third one. It's, I guess a social network. But it was, it was intriguing um, how things have just evolved so much since that particular platform was developed and now you see a facebook split up into so many different entities but yet twitter never really has and it's mm. kind of destroying its stock prices <laughs> anyhow it was it was fascinating but um, so so when your shop became more than just the report generator and instead uh, a strategic kind of consumer of data were were, were you all doing this kind of um at your own free will, was it was it interesting and intriguing to you, or were some of these asks coming from the top? I mean, like what, what's going on as you become this really robust data shop? I guess is my short way to ask that question.
1: Yeah, a little bit, uh, yeah, a little, little bit of column A, a little column B. Okay. You know, we we certainly you know still get requests okay. um, from from all over the campus, uh, yeah. from all levels of the campus, and so forth. So we are still kind of you know people have specific curiosities mm-hmm. and we dig in to those curiosities. Um, But, you know, I don't know that there was a a single moment uh, where we were deciding to kind of uh, dig in ourselves. But there were, you know, um, some requests that come in where it kind of, in the same way that a conversation, you know, somebody says a word, oh, that reminds me of this thing. That started to happen with the data stuff. It's like, all right, well, we've been fielding all these questions about student retention and retention rates, uh, and boy, we've been doing it for a couple of years now. We've yeah. started to see the patterns. We see how these things fluctuate. We see some of the factors that are contributing to non retention and things like that. And then it starts to be the case where you're like, hmm, I wonder what's possible here. Like, I wonder how good we could be at predicting, you know, mm-hmm. who's going to retain versus who's not going to retain yeah. or something like, you know, our enrollment forecast. You yes. know, like, I wonder how accurate we could be at, like, knowing where we're going to land yeah. <laughs> next semester and stuff like that.
0: I, I want to get into that, and I'll spend the rest of our conversation talking about that. But I, I respect your commitment to um, not just data integrity, but data privacy. It's not really something that often comes up, especially I mean the kind of reports that get run. You know, that chairs run or deans run. Uh, that that the privacy of the of the employee or the student that is that is really kind of laden in that data. is it, it kind of just goes unacknowledged, right? Mm. Why are you so concerned with privacy? Why is that a pillar of what you're doing? And why is that important?
1: Yeah, I mean, increasingly it seems like personal identity, you know, takes on this shade of of being related to something like, yeah. you know, your data. Like, If it's the case that, you know, we, we talk about our our history and the data, you know, we leave behind cookie crumbs and yeah. stuff like that, you know, you know different theories of personhood out there, but I mean, in some respects I think we identify ourselves with the trail we've left behind, with yeah. the mark we've left in various databases. Um, and so, you know, I think about myself when I think about a lot of these projects, like would I want my data getting mm-hmm. out about this? If, you know, if this were to become public, would I be okay with that? Mm-hmm. And, Things like that, and I, I think it's a good guide. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and you never know how people think. So, I mean, you know, if, whether you're a student, faculty, staff, uh, you know, we collect a lot of it, and you know, we want to continue to collect mm-hmm. a lot of it and use it. Um, and you know, we we certainly want to kind of respect that people have given yeah. that over. Yeah. You know. Uh, and, you know, we want to kind of be be respectful of that to make sure that we continue to have access. Right. Um, but, you know, also I think, you know, I, I really do mean it at the level of, like, personal identity. I think, you know, in the same way that, you know, we talk about, you know, one's history in a non-data sense, like I think these days, you know, your history in some ways becomes mirrored in the data you leave behind.
0: I guess, me I'll, I'll unpack that question and be totally uh, forthright about it. Your, we can go back to meta, matter Facebook, for a decade, the criticisms have been, in one way, shape, or form, connected to the engineers, the developers, who have very little background in the humanities. How has your PhD in philosophy impacted how you grapple with data?
1: Yeah, I think about it a lot in terms of, like, the free will debate. Yeah, (laughs) like It comes up a lot for this predictive stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, what are we trying to do? We're trying to predict behavior or to understand behavior. Uh, and I think if you're too, you know, nose into the data, uh, that it's, it's easy to kind of think like, oh gosh, if we just had a perfect model, then we could know if we knew all of the things, then we could kind of have an idea of what's on the horizon, uh, in a perfect sense. Um, and I don't know. I mean, not that philosophy has a, a an answer to the free will determinism debate, but I mean, an awareness of that dichotomy is yeah. is very handy to have in hand because it's like we're talking about you know student behaviors or employee behaviors. It's like at some level, you know, I I believe we have the ability to do otherwise, yeah. and there's like a certain you know reveling one can have in having yeah. a model that's unable to latch on to those. You know, when you when you're surprised by events and behaviors yeah. it's like well you know there, there's something uh, to celebrate in that as well uh, whether we're happy with it or not it's it's happy when it works out and we can yeah. kind of have some accuracy but when we're not accurate there's a sense in which it's like you know what i think we're just coming up against
0: the the, the nature of the thing that we're studying okay okay I, I, yeah i appreciate um just acknowledging that there are ramifications for this information right that's extremely important but let's talk about this uh this model, okay. Yeah. Um, let's let, let's let's uh, let's go back in time. Uh, tell the listeners about the development of this predictive retention model. Like what, what moment or moments um, really kind of triggered something in your brain, and you wanted to go down this rabbit hole.
1: Yeah. So yeah, the the initial plan for it, um, you know, it wasn't as clean as like you know what we should develop a predictive retention model. Um, instead. Um, we had done this in-depth study of high-impact practices and and related um, initiatives Um, and the question came up after the fact I mean one of the takeaways from that report is like hey look the students who participate in these high-impact practices they retain better they graduate more frequently and stuff like that and of course you know one of the, the questions that comes up is like well are these students who were just going to be graduating anyway? Are are the students who are doing these things students who are going to be retaining anyway? And mm-hmm. we're just kind of playing that up as as highlighting these programs. Okay. And so one of the ways you know that we started to think about that you know in a perfect world we would have a you know, scientific study you know control group mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. Um, we didn't have that. We were studying you know historical patterns and retention graduation et cetera. And so you know there's a couple of different ways you can go about it. You can develop propensity score, you know, groupings to Mm -hmm. kind of compare one group to the other to see if there's any meaningful differences. Mm -hmm. Um, but the route we ended up going was to say, Hmm, if we could model retention behavior in a reliable way with Mm -hmm. some, you know, good accuracy levels in our models, then we could make some predictions about students, you know, backcasting you know we could predict you know do we think the student's going to retain or not mm-hmm. based on our models and then we could kind of compare that to whether or not they were in these high impact practices okay. so what we kind of set up was the opportunity to say like well we have a we actually then built it You're good. <laughs> uh, we were able to say you know like we have a decent model at this point yeah. with good accuracy and we can make predictions this model's you know suspecting that this student was maybe predicted not to retain uh, and they participated in this program and they retained so yeah. maybe there's evidence to support the efficacy uh, or you know yeah that, that we could kind of transfer this kind of transformational properties potentially of these, yeah. some of these programs uh, versus you know that the flip side of this is like if the model is predicting yes that student is totally going to retain and then they do mm-hmm. well, like, well no surprises there you okay. know if they're involved in a programs like well they were they were on track anyway as far as our model was concerned yeah. but we were looking for that pocket of you know students who were you know proving our model wrong in some respects okay. you know and seeing you know where they were participating in programs mm-hmm. and so we were able to identify some of the programs around campus where it's like you know what according to this model for better or worse, you know, the model thinks this, the students participating in this program wouldn't retain very well, okay. and they are retaining very well. And so we were looking at that discrepancy between predicted values and actual values and mm-hmm. seeing, like, these students are far outperforming what we would have predicted. So that, it was driven by trying to kind of follow up on that high-impact practice mm-hmm. study. Um, and in so doing, we developed that predictive retention model after that was done, you know, after we've kind of played around with the high impact practice piece for a while, could step back for a moment and say like, oh, we made some models about predictive retention, uh, and I wonder how we can operationalize this to see, you know, are there other opportunities for thinking about the, the data we've just generated about the kind of, you know, speculations, you know, the things that we, we think might be the case in the future. Gosh, if we have some ideas about how we think the future might shake out, are there things that we could start to do in the present to start to alter things like human behavior right. uh, to nudge uh, in certain ways? You know, if we think a student is, is maybe not going to be retained into the future, um, why? You know, what are the variables coming into play in the model? You know, what seems to be tripping it up, mm-hmm. um, and can we address that? You know, in some cases, maybe not, but at least in some cases. You know, the hope would be, you know, with enough lead time mm-hmm. uh, that we could get ahead of this and try to kind of catch students before they happen to drop out or, or what
0: have you. So as you're going through these multiple iterations of this model, are you adding variables, taking them away? Like what's happening to the different versions as it, as it kind of fine tunes itself?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a process of looking for all the variables that are at our, our, at our disposal to kind of see, hey, what are some of the combinations of these variables mm-hmm. that are being just or fair to what a student is. You know, mm-hmm. we want to kind of acknowledge that you know, students have all these facets. They have their, you know, personal characteristics, their academic history, their, you know, socioeconomic, financial history, mm-hmm. and so forth. So we're tapping into all of that data. To see, you know, what are the combinations of variables uh, run through these models uh, that yield the most predictive power, uh, and also, you know, what are what are the different models at our disposal here? You know, what are the models mm-hmm. that w- we can use that might be appropriate to to data of this type? So it's mm-hmm. a lot of kind of um, model experimentation as much as there is um, experimentation with different inputs.
0: So you get the model. <clears throat> This is the, well, I don't want to say the easy part, right? But you, you mentioned nudges. And I think you're really building um, a larger strategy made up of tactics and ultimately a kind of a culture change based on this this thing. So what does it take from your perspective to get others to see the value of this and to begin to take some responsibility for those nudges?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm my, my hope is that we can get a really solid uninterrupted, uh, semester's worth of intervention under our belt okay. to potentially see the retention rate move a bit. Okay. We've been remarkably steady in our retention rate over the last, call it, decade. Yeah. I mean, hovering between 67 and 68 percent yeah. retention rates for all students at the undergrad level. Um, you know, it's been remarkably steady, uh, and my hope is that, you know, if it's the case that we can move the needle on that even a little bit, um, you know, that this could kind of show what's possible. Um, It could kind of show that, you know, if we use this data, if we use this to kind of decide how we can act early, uh, then we can address, uh, you know, we can try to address student issues, um, needs, demands, desires that they may have, um, things going on in their life. I mean, no illusions here that we'll be able to kind of change all minds. will still be students that we don't retain. Uh, but um, I, I've, I've got to believe or hope, I guess, that yeah. there are at least some students who, if we kind of act early, we can kind of help.
0: Yeah. Are you, have, have, I guess, have there been any interventions that have not been effective? And I don't want to get into politics of any of this, but I think that this, this data now really provides... Um, quantitative understanding of these programs and whether or not they're working versus anecdotal evidence are there anything that have kind of surprised you that that work better or not as as good as one would predict you know I'm not I don't want to pick on any departments but you know different kinds of interventions I mean what what's working better than you really assumed would
1: well you know um, I, I was really happy um, it's I mean the the, the quick answer is it's probably a little too early to know what's going to be effective and what's not okay. uh, potential preliminary indicator of the possibility of there being some efficacy here um, came in um, you know December of 2021 mm-hmm. uh, where we were kind of doing a, a test run of the modeling making our predictions you know which students do we think will come mm-hmm. back which won't um, and at that time we had our list of students who we were predicting not to retain and at that time in December, they had not yet registered for spring spring of 2022 courses. Okay. Um, so for that group, um, we were able to kind of uh, grab a, a small subset of those students and engage in some in strategic outreach in terms of uh, some emailing, some calling, some importantly, I think, um, text messaging. Okay. Uh, and the text messaging was, you know, light nudging, I would say. You know, yeah. it was saying, hey, we know you're not registered for the upcoming semester. Um, is there anything we can do to help? Um, and it's, you know, the interactive, you know, yeah. auto bot texting thing, you know, if they say yes, I need help, then oh, what well, do you need help with this topic or that yeah. topic, et cetera. Um, of those students that we had reached out to, you know, via text, who we were predicting were not going to retain, and at that point had had not registered for courses. Um, You know, just shy of half of them ended up registering for the semester. Um, And you know, I I do mean it, you know, we're not sure yet what the efficacy would be, you know, Mm -hmm. a a quick, um, you know, uh, objection is like, well, maybe they were going to be registering anyway yeah. and we just happened to text them on the day right before they were clicking okay to the you know being registered and something like that time will tell I mean we still need to going to be digging in for future semesters to see how that's going to go okay. um, but you know the hope is that you know by offering some additional support some additional outreach um, you know opening up the door to show what wraparound surfaces we have available uh, and making those connections um, that at least some of those students are going to have an extra point of, of contact, mm-hmm. an extra set of ears to listen, um, an extra set of,
0: you know, advice giving um, yeah. to be headed their way. So I am really ignorant when it comes to data and to st- 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 yeah, statistics. But how, can, how do you fine-tune the model to know whether or not that student was going to register anyway? I guess you said you're going to try to, you know, it's going to get more accurate. But what does that mean right, for a lay person? Explain that to me
1: yeah so i mean one of the ways we've been approaching it here is to say you know for for a full run of the model which you know our, our best bets are on fall to fall retention yeah. which this previous one was not and so in some respects students just are more likely to retain fall to spring okay. so it's not a great subsample there but for this fall the fall one you know what we're aiming for uh is to say hey we we have a good model at this point. You know, we have between seventy-five percent and eighty-five percent accuracy mm-hmm. uh, in predicting whether a student will retain or not. Mm-hmm. So, when we have a big group of students who we're predicting won't retain, um, if we're able to retain those mm-hmm. students, we will have kind of proved the model wrong. Okay. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I kind of I'll call it a kind of semi or, or pseudo measure of something like causality yeah. would be to say like well can we, can we change behavior can we cause a student to retain to, to register and what have you Well, one way of interpreting that would be to say like with the counterfactual <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they, they wouldn't have unless you know, we were predicting that this wouldn't have happened and, and then it did yeah. uh, at, a, at a rate that was you know beyond what we well, was okay. in the kind of expected range of, of error okay that makes sense.
0: What are some of the variables that you uh, that are part of this model? Because I know it's conversations come up. It's questions that you and I have both received. What are some of the things that are going into this model?
1: Yeah. So we're looking at about twenty years of retention history. So patterns in retention rates from fall to fall and spring to spring for undergrad degree seeking students. Um, and so by by looking into about twenty years of history, we're pulling on uh, students' academics, their demographics, and their socioeconomics. So we're. Looking at, you know, our main variable here is were they retained or not, our dependent variable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes or no. So it's just a binary classification problem. Um, Variables that we're using Mm -hmm. include things like students' GPAs. Mm -hmm. um, Since we're doing fall to fall and spring to spring, were they there in that in-between semester? Uh, Things like academic standing, uh, the number of withdrawal, you know, W courses that they had in a specific semester. We're also looking at things like you know when did they begin with us okay. and you know what when is it now so the amount of time that they've been with us mm-hmm. uh, comes into play so the, the span that they've been here um, things like uh, race ethnicity uh, sex first generation mm-hmm. status um, things like um, their efc their expected family contribution yeah. uh, their financial dependent dependency status mm-hmm. uh, these are all you know the kind of things that are going in there so we our kind of go-to right now is a list of, uh, I think, approximately 20 variables yeah. um, with the hope that we're kind of touching on all of the main areas um, that would, you know, contribute to who a, who a student is. You yeah. know, certainly no kind of, um, n- no belief here in omniscience, but, you know, of the variables that we have at our disposal, the hope is that we're touching on uh, many of the, the fundamental aspects of what would kind of contribute to
0: a student's behavior. How does this and what is going on with you and me and some of the, you know many of the folks around the university and that small task force, but how does this relate to enrollment like in your brain what are you thinking i mean because ultimately that's the the goal is to have this one you know beautiful you know tool that can hopefully retain and help with enrollment so get let me let me get into your brain a little bit like what are you thinking those that relationship is with this retention and enrollment?
1: yeah so if you kind of look at our at our history you know we see you know our our enrollment levels you know declining over the last you know called it a decade plus yeah. Um, yeah. so you know we we've seen our enrollment declining um we've also kind of seen our retention rate pretty pretty steady okay. um so I mean in terms of you know hoping to be flat, you know hoping to have a kind of steady stabilized enrollment, um, or to, you know, hopefully grow. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think we, we have to kind of be addressing two different areas at least, uh, of what that funnel or pipeline looks yeah. like. Yeah. The one we're addressing, uh, most wholeheartedly now is to use this kind of machine learning algorithms to try to kind of drive interventions around student retention mm-hmm. by retaining more students. You know, if we can kind of keep up students' momentum, uh, the hope is that they're they're continuing to be enrolled in courses mm-hmm. on the way to graduation, okay. um, so that's the kind of hope for you know, retaining the students that we already have. Okay. The other side of things that I look forward to in the coming, um, hopefully, hopefully soon, but you know, in the coming years, yeah. would be to take similar approaches to our admissions data. Yeah. So we're currently in the process of working out some predictive models around student admissions Mm -hmm. so of students who apply and are accepted you know how good it can we get at predicting who do we think is going to actually matriculate who's going to come here and register and who's not so if we have some good guesses of the students who are going to matriculate um, you know I think that provides us with opportunities for one kind of messaging if you think that oh, that students totally gonna come Uh, let's you know hit them with this kind of communication strategy I think it's a very different communication strategy if we're saying, you know what, the model says that student is unlikely to come. A yeah. Low probability of them matriculating. You know, I don't think we do nothing, but I think there's, you know, if it's the case that we're thinking they're not going to matriculate, then I think we have to be thinking about, you know, what would change someone's mind who yeah. we think is maybe not coming here, is thinking about maybe, uh, you know, enrolling elsewhere yeah. Yeah. And, and so forth. So. I think you know i look forward to on the admissions side of things you know refilling the bucket that is you know student enrollment and you know the size of the student body Um, i think we're going to have to be increasing our levels overall and so i think part of that is going to be i hope leveraging these same kinds of models Mm -hmm. um, with with different variables in the case of admissions because we have less info about students at that point Uh, but to try to kind of get out ahead of this to say Um, Well, you know, what
0: communication strategies Mm -hmm. do we need to deploy to this group of students versus that group? That's a really, really good way of putting it, and now I think about this, like, rhetorically. You have to recognize there are different audiences for different orators, different situations, and so we would ask a communicator, right, to adjust their language and their argument Mm -hmm. based on the audience, and that's kind of, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to say efficiency because it's oftentimes used in a bad way. But I think it's a more appropriate use of, of the resources that are available. I think that's that makes total sense. Absolutely. Um, I, I did have uh, okay. So um, <clears throat> what are your goals for this predictive retention task force as well as the, the larger working group that we're getting together in May? What would you like to see accomplished by August 1st?
1: Yeah, by August 1st, you know, my hope is that we have seen... A large number of the students that we predicted not to retain actually enrolled in courses. Okay. So I mean, I think if we can you know, see that happening, that's mm-hmm. going to be huge. Yeah. Uh, and you know, between now and then, you know, every day more and more students are enrolled, yeah. uh, including students that we thought weren't going to get enrolled. Yeah. Uh, and so I think you know, as time goes on, the between now and yeah. August, the the group of students who were predicting not to retain and yet who are not yet registered. Mm-hmm. Gets smaller and smaller, yeah. yeah. So I mean, our, our load gets smaller, the lift gets light, lighter as we get closer, yeah. hopefully. And so you know, I think you know, what starts as a large group that where we're trying to kind of break this up into a bunch of different groups so it's not too heavy for any particular person yeah. as time goes on you know we're able to kind of be a little bit more targeted yeah. a little more intense with our you know our outreach and so forth yeah know? so it wouldn't make sense to be you know doing one-on-one calls for all of the students who are out there and so forth but yeah. if we start to kind of see that that list narrow down or we can kind of see where our our bets could be best yes. placed then I think we can kind of operate differently. I mean, one of the other things I'll say about the, the task force, the predictive retention task force, is that it's it's kind of had the the interesting externality of bringing up the necessity of us kind of being all on the same page as mm-hmm. employees in terms of what's going on and when. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's the the potential of, you know, an air traffic control problem here in the sense that... You know, when we start, first started this task force, it's like, all right, well, we're going to communicate with this group of students and we're thinking about doing it on this date um, and so forth. And then we would start to hear from other groups around mm-hmm. campus like, oh, well, we're doing a thing and we're going to be reaching out on, on these dates and we don't want that to overlap. And so the, the nice positive externality here is that it's really brought to light uh, you know, how much uh, more communication we could be doing with each other about yeah. what's going on. Uh, to make sure that we're not, you know, over-messaging to students and uh, not over them with calls, texts, emails, et cetera, uh, but also just to be aware of what, what each other are doing yeah. and to kind of have a a better coordination uh, of the kinds of uh, communications that are going on. Uh, and I, I mean this not just in terms of, like, you know, our communications folks, but, I mean, there's people communicating with students all across campus, right. and there's no central kind of place where people can go to kind of see what's going out now Mm -hmm. and so I don't even think that we'll ever get to a point where it's like here's all the communications but it's been really nice to kind of see this task force coming together with representation across the campus to say like simply being in a room with one another you know on a weekly basis it's been uh, eye-opening in yeah. terms of being able to say like oh yeah we'll wait a week you know yeah. you got this thing going on of course we'll wait yeah. whereas before you know if that task force didn't exist we all would have just done the same thing at the same time yes. and uh, yes. uh, at a time when everyone feels stretched I and mean, it's been uh, kind of a relief to know like oh yeah we can we can wait they're, yeah. they're handling this right now
0: from a faculty perspective and I don't want to speak for all faculty but or, or chairs and deans I, I think that there was a level of exhaustion, you kind of alluded to that a little bit. It's everybody's job right I mean retention is everybody's job, but it, but at the same time it was nobody knew what their job was right you know and I think this is really people are are they're excited about this outside of i mean beyond the task force i mean but like just the willingness to participate in that working group in May right We've got chairs on there, we've got a dean on there I mean people want to be a part of it because I feel like we're starting to create a, a clear system, some processes and a structure that we're gonna to continue to iterate on and adjust as we move forward, but we're not gonna be stepping on everybody's toes over and over and over again, which is, people appreciate that. Right? Yeah, So. Yeah.
1: yeah. you mentioned, you know, culture earlier yeah.
0: too, and so I mean, I think,
1: you know, the different angles that we, that we can approach this, you know, if we're all doing it in a coordinated manner, um, will, I think, start to change the culture because you know we're approaching this from a kind of in somewhat you know a removed fashion in the data you know very removed Uh, we have you know some people in in, with various wraparound services that have a you know maybe a tighter connection to students Uh, and you as you said I mean you have faculty as well who are you know frequently increasingly frequently Uh face-to-face or even you know with students in in online courses but you know interacting with students in a way that is Beyond what I can do in the data. And yeah. so, I mean, like, there, there's different levels of engagement with students across campus. And, uh, you know, my belief is that the, the more we can kind of see what that what those points of engagement are yeah. uh, and to be, you know, making sure that we're all kind of working in concert yeah. um, is, is huge. So, I mean, you know, what, what is to be done, you know, if you're you know, staff, what's to be done if you're faculty, et cetera. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, you know, extremely happy for, for anything anybody wants to do, yeah. uh, but I think we have some ideas of ways that we kind of can be engaging different groups around camp
0: yeah i mean there's just certain things even as we begin to flesh out uh, a, a communication plan for next year that a light bulb goes off in my head when i look at the success of one department's chair reaching out to majors right of course that conversation that communication is not going to necessarily be more meaningful but there's a relationship right <laughs> yeah. that we that that the chair wants to take advantage of that we should be taking advantage of that doesn't exist for like a university comms plan it's just different right so that's that i think knowing your audience knowing different strategies we're not trying to overwhelm anybody i think we're just trying to be way more thoughtful uh, in how we do this so what did i miss what have i not covered have we got have we got into it <laughs> have we got into it enough because i could talk about this all day
1: yeah i mean i think we've We've touched on a, on a lot of it. Uh, yeah, I, I think you know we've got we've got these models. We're feeding it a lot of data. Uh, these are kind of machine learning models. Uh, for anybody who's interested, yeah. we're uh, using naive Bayes, uh, random forests, and AdaBoost models. Don't know what
0: that means, but okay. Yeah, I just want to yeah. throw it yeah. in there, as, yeah, just yeah. in case blockchain. So. Yeah. <laughs> yes. so
1: you know, I think you know what we're really happy with with how we have the models set up okay. and how they're interacting with one another. We have them kind of set up as an ensemble of. Uh, of models working in concert um and you know the the team has done great work in terms of you know automating pieces of this as well and yeah. so uh, i think every semester that goes on we're going to have more and more data to tap into some of the nuances of student behavior uh, and every semester we're going to be uh, fine-tuning our models yeah. a little bit more so you know i think we're at a good place already uh, and i have a lot of optimism about um, our ability to kind of increase the efficacy
0: of this uh, moving forward You are doing a billion things at once, but I do want to ask you, I mean, in the perfect world, (laughs) what would you have in terms of uh, 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 data, I hate data dashboarding to use too much, but what, at at an institution of higher education, for internal decision makers on, in the academic affairs side, but also student affairs side, what what would that dashboard look like to you? Like what, you know, I, I mean, get creative as possible but like what 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 would you have out there for people
1: yeah so i mean i think one one thing that kind of comes to mind for me right now and this is something that i brought up early on in in digit so our data integrity and Mm -hmm. governance team our our initiative to kind of get our data house in order (laughs) Uh, one of the things that kind of you know i think that got (laughs) that group got kind of started and i i I couldn't help but think that you know the reading the room i couldn't help but think like all right well we got to start from scratch and like we got to get our data going yeah and i one of the points i wanted to make early on in that group um, was like i think our first order of business is as a small committee to know what we already have yeah Um, because i i think you know we're not perfect but i think that there is you know way more out there that's available to people than than folks even realize yeah and so it's you know long. you know to the question of like does my ideal dashboard look yeah. like for for just anybody mm-hmm. you know i think there's a, a ton of resources that are that are out there whether uh, people are aware or not you know yeah. whether we're talking about logging into the edw and pulling down a report or you know logging into the edw and playing around with an already existing yes. dashboard yes um, we, we perhaps haven't marketed ourselves super well you know we have all these we have the business intelligence you know, data science mm-hmm. and analytics team posting a bunch of uh, historical analyses and, and Insights and stuff there, so you know. In a perfect world, I don't know that I have a an ideal dashboard in mind. As much as I'm looking forward to a future where we have uh, a lot more awareness of what is already there, and more importantly, perhaps you know that that people have you know data literacy in terms of interpretation and awareness of where to go. Like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if we have this thing, but I know where to go to kind of figure it out. And I think you know we're we're. The the hope is that we would have increasing data maturity going forward, and I think we're well on the way. Uh, Still, cleanup to do, uh, but I think you know as time goes on, I think people around campus are going to be even better about kind of knowing where to go, knowing who to talk to, knowing what,
0: uh, knowing what's there. That's a. It's almost you're kind of almost like a clearinghouse, right? Of data. Is that I mean? Here's how I think about it. And I was just talking to to Devika Banerjee, who's in Com Studies, uh, associate professor. We were talking about the sharing of data from researcher to researcher, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to freak anybody out by increased research expectations. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> you hear but, but but that is a thing that happens at other institutions, right? You share your data sets. Mm-hmm. You can you can use so maybe I you know you're looking at quant stuff. I'm looking at qual stuff. But it's all in this one package. We don't have a system in place to do that better right ideally I think anybody who sends out a campus survey right would have to go through a process of making sure that those uh, uh, measurements are going to be accurate and then think about all the cool stuff you could find in that in those results right we don't think about it because we just have to say that bar charts or bar graphs are bad but <laughs> me I want to look at the qualitative answers to some of this stuff not mm-hmm, just the, mm-hmm. the line the lines you know yeah. but we we don't have that mechanism to share yeah my yeah. does that make sense
1: yeah it does yeah so I don't know if, if it would be a clearinghouse I mean so EDw yeah. enterprise data warehouse yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I know the difference <laughs> to like spell out what a difference between a clearinghouse and a warehouse would be but what you're describing almost starts to sound like what what some folks start to call like a a data lake house okay, okay. Uh, where the idea would be like all right warehouse it's like prepackaged; all yeah. your stuff is ready to go the reports there are just you know plug and play and right pull down your thing the idea of a data lake house is that like well, sometimes you need to get in there and see the raw stuff uh, and decide how you want to kind of use it from there yeah. um, i think the the current edw structure is you know really great at, at the moment in terms of being able to house a lot of stuff from Banner. Um, I think in the future we would want to consider, and I don't know if this is an EDW solution or some other platform, Mm -hmm. but a a go-to place, maybe that's what the clearinghouse reference would be, but a go-to place that's known uh, of, you know, where all these things are. Um, You know, one of the things that's going to come up on Thursday um, is that we're proposing a new survey management policy, uh, and that's, you know, to your survey point, you know, there is about to be hopefully um, some additional kind of oversight and kind of, like I said earlier, air traffic control yeah. of, you know, what's going out when, who's asking what, have we ever asked that question before, do we already have what yeah. you're trying to do, et cetera. Um, so I think that'll be, that'll be good. Um, right. and, and, you know, I think this whole project, you know, and it certainly involves a lot of, you know, knowledge management as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, how do we kind of treat our data as an asset? Uh, and by treating our data as an asset, we don't want a bunch of, stuffed into the mattresses. Uh, yeah. We want a place to go where we're kind of treating it as, as the value that it is.
0: Thank you, sir. I think we got into uh, the nitty-gritty a little bit when it comes to this. Um, <laughs> I think we answered a lot of questions, and it was a good conversation. It Appreciate was. it. Uh, thank right, you for friend. having me. Thank you so much. And uh, Terry's calling me again, so I guess I'll call her back <laughs> in a bit. Thank, All you, right. thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Cheers.